0: Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org.
1: The first thing that uh, I found really interesting amid all of the noise that one hears that you say takes absolutely right away from the fact That the two presidents have a very solid rapport with one another. And that seems like such a contradiction. (laughs) Uh, How do they get along so well amid all the noise that is happening? And and to what effect
0: and to what potential result? Well, yes, I agree, Fred.
1: Thank you very much. What do they say to each other?
0: you Thank you. You know, when I was traveling to, to Washington to, to hand my letters of uh I had a dinner with President Obama. And I said, well, besides, you know, sending the customary uh, written letter to President Trump, the letters start saying in Spanish gran y buen amigo great and good friend I said what is the message that I should transmit to him and he said well, remember that in our first conversation when he called me after I was elected, I told him that the trend towards confrontation was to be the most strongest friend in the relationship. And that people would like to confront Mexico and the US, and the president of the US, and the president of Mexico. And that at all costs, we should avoid confrontation. Because confrontation will not benefit any And, um, of course, when I handed my credentials, I told that to President Trump, and his mind, he remembers, and said, oh yes, we have to work on that. So that is one element. In the mind of my president is public confrontation does not benefit the bilateral relationship. The second thing is that um, he, he doesn't travel. He decided not to travel out of the country the first year, maybe the first two years. This has been criticized in Mexico and in the US. But there is an explanation for that. It's because he was really concentrating on the priorities of his government. And he knows that whatever is not done in the first two years, then it gets more complicated to be done in Mexico and in tell you that. This also has reduced the uh, chances of having unexpected consequences on a bilateral visit <laughs> to So they have stick to telephone calls that uh, my president speaks always in Spanish with translator. And why that is important because that gives him the time to listen carefully to the translations and also to think very carefully what is he going to do. And the third is that he is a, a person that knows a lot about history, has very clear references of the kind of relationships that he wants to have with the There are two main references for him. The relationship between Benito Juarez and Abraham Lincoln, and the relationship between Lázaro Cárdenas and Franklin Delano. And he says, if so different presidents could get along, we have to work for the benefit of the two countries. And then he speaks to letters. You remember when we, When President Trump uh, announced the threat of tariffs because of the migration issues, President López Obrador answered him back with a letter saying, I'm sending my ministers to reach a negotiation and an agreement. (coughs) The easiest way would be the confrontation and also that Mexico takes retaliatory measures, which we could have taken, of course, we were the weakest part and we know all the consequences. But he he wrote two things very important. That is the conversation of migration. Mexico was hoping, and he was himself hoping, that the US will keep close to the words that are inscribed in the Statue of Liberty. And second, that if we engage in retaliation and confrontation, will we end both Blind and toothless. The words in Spanish are tuertos, not totally blind, the only one. Eye, that is a tuerto. <laughs> and, and chimuelos. Chimuelos is not totally without teeth, but only with some four or five. So he wrote, if we engage in these confrontations, we will all end blind and toothless. And we hope that the U.S. will honor the words. And why is this important because you have this in, in writing and that is the position of the ways in which we negotiate and so I think that that explains why they have a lot have a lot well you put things in writing you avoid confrontation you believe you have examples to follow on the relationship
1: are we essentially talking about the respective domestic political scene functioning pretty independently of this driving now number one trade relationship between these two countries. I like Ambassador David out to address that. I mean, is business as usual continue
2: amid you know what some would call the noise that happens? Is as you say, is bound to escalate between now and next November. Yes, I think business is continuing, and from the perspective of uh, American business, uh, in Mexico, and yesterday we had the opportunity to meet with a number of the largest companies in Minnesota, uh, who are actively involved, selling into Mexico, producing in Mexico, producing in Mexico for sale to the United States, but elsewhere, selling so goods and services, things are moving well. And these countries are by and large thinking of expansion. The other side is the number of Mexican companies that have set up shop in Minnesota and are buying goods here. we are actually doing canning of products here what have you so yes one of the interesting things of the last 25 years since NAFTA came into force is that the nature of the trade relationship has solidified in many ways it's not rock hard concrete and it can be disrupted, but on a day-to-day basis Best of I've seen has it given us some of the figures of what a million people a day cross the border, yes. fifty thousand trucks a day cross the border, a million and a half dollars a minute. Or, or these are figures that are beyond my limited capacity. But uh, things are moving well, but they could be much better. And, and is the is the rhetoric the? very heated rhetoric that's escalating now about migration, is that that in any way, how specifically is it affecting? I think it affects in the sense that, uh, yeah, I said that there are American companies that are thinking of expanding in Mexico. I also need, in my current position as business consultant, American and other national companies, uh, nations, which, if they are not already in Mexico, are hesitant, more hesitant than they would have been a few years ago, because of the rhetoric on both sides, the threats of tariffs, uh, just the the the, learning, the 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 making force the way, uh, particularly the United States, refers to Mexico. So while I say things are going well, uh, I do think
0: there are limitations, especially on the part of people who have not yet participated in Mexico, as they think of going in. I I think one element I would like to wonder why things are still going on is that since integration has become so especially in the last 25 years there is a lot of interaction uh, company to company but also between local authorities so for example the interaction with the state of california the government of california with texas and the state of texas is something that it, it has its own dynamics and sometimes uh, a lot of things that are important just get to the State Department and, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at in Mexico at the last moment. One example. If the, the secretary the new secretary of the state of Texas was in DC last week and now she's in D.C. And you know, she had two worries which you will <laughs> how do you negotiate this? One is when are you going to appoint the new consul general in San Antonio? We need to have all the consulates filled with appointees, which is something very, normally this would go to the Department of the State, and it is the State Secretary of Texas. Second is, oh, we need to, we are building a new highway in Houston, so we need, we are going to expropriate the consulate in Houston, but we are negotiating for a new, Building. So, how do we deal with these issues? So, and normally this is done through the foreign ministries. Now, it's more and more also the state authorities that are involved in this, in the case of California, with Rico, So, that also brings another dynamic to the relationship, because the the authorities, the local authorities, are progressing quite a lot. So, it's a little bit more difficult to disrupt that cooperation. So that is one key, key element, the action of the local authorities and the action of the business, uh, business to business. But what I agree and what is the most important message maybe from here is what Ambassador David said. I mean, the ratification of USMCA may bring additional benefits of what we have already had. But the non-ratification of USMCA and the eventual withdrawal from NAFTA. The total not only economically speaking, but all this building of the trust that we have been doing in the last years, particularly on the U.S., will collapse. And if if it is not ratified, the U.S.M.C.A. If it, there is some withdrawal from NAFTA, and then there is this rhetoric on, on on the two countries, the trust will collapse, and I. I cannot even imagine the entire consequences that we could have. It's
1: interesting you mentioned Michigan during your talk. Uh, about, you talked about Michigan being a loser in the eyes of Representative Debbie Dingell. Um, Some sectors of Michigan. Exactly, but on the whole, um, Michigan has this large trading relationship. At French level, among people Especially being pressed by politicians. something mean, Michigan turned from blue to red in the last election. It's very, very critical. And I just wondered if both of you could give us briefly some insight into what the holdup is. Is it, is it a plainly political equation? What's the holdup in extending something that, in you know, gross seems to be in
2: everyone's interest, and that is the renewal of this trading relationship? What specifically are That are of concern to uh, important groups in the United States. One is labor relations in Mexico, and the other is environmental protection in Mexico. And. and and, and a lot of this is based on misunderstanding and misimpression. I think you cannot have a conversation in the United States about Mexico for very long without somebody saying, and look at all the jobs that Mexico stole from the United States. We all defer this. Now, there is no doubt that many jobs that were particularly manufacturing jobs in the United States have gone to Mexico and China and most, most likely just disappeared in the face of automation. But keep this figure in mind, and this gets lost. Uh, Last time I looked at it, the number of jobs that had left the United States to go to Mexico was about 800,000. 800,000 in 25 years. Now, If you're one of the families that's impacted, that's important. If you're one of the communities that's impacted, it's important. But keep in mind, we live in a country that produces 175,000 new jobs a month. So 800,000 jobs over a 25-year period has to be kept in perspective now that's not the full story and when that argument is made rarely is it coupled with an acknowledgement of the kinds of jobs that are created in the united states because of the trade in the market so i think the hesitations that we see about a new uh, relationship with the agreement, in part, there are some specific issues that should be dealt with. But I think there's also a good deal of I guess I would just simply
0: add that besides labor and, and environment, which are key, the two other issues that are uh, holding the USMCA ratification process is pharmaceuticals and intellectual property, and which is an issue that is basically to be discussed internally in the U.S. and the issue of enforcement that is related to how do we guarantee enforcement of labor and environmental um, uh, stances. Uh, that's why I made reference to the labor reform in Mexico so that we are really committed to implement that labor reform that is totally in the in agreement with uh, with the USMCA, uh, but as as Mr. D'Alelio was saying, and, and I said it also during my intervention, five million jobs in the US depend on the relationship with Mexico. It is not the, loss that the jobs that were lost, but the ones that are being created at, that now are related to the with with the relationship uh, with Mexico. Uh, but we have seen also uh, an interesting trend in Michigan. Of course, Michigan went from being a blue state to a red state. But then it was again a Democratic governor who won the last election. And, uh, and if you, I you... I was in Michigan when the border was not closed. But it was slowed with the migration. and. Um, and I met with all the auto manufacturers. They were furious because for they they worked with the model of just in time. So for every hour of delay of an auto part, they were having to pay fines to up to sixty thousand U.S. dollars. So they were furious. Um, they say this is not possible. They were contacting all the representatives in, in Washington, and just by coincidence, when I came back from Michigan, I asked my political section, said, can you tell me how is the polling in Michigan regarding elections? And they went to the polling and said, well, President Trump is 17 points down.
1: We'll just have to see I
0: guess. (laughs) Well, that was at that moment, and I
1: understand perfectly well that polls are the photography. They are a snapshot of the moment, yes. I I have one more question before we go to uh, a number of them that have come in from from our folks in the audience, and that has to do with the China relationship uh, and the China dynamic. You say Mexico does not have a lot of Chinese Investment in things like infrastructure. I can tell you from first hand experience that the smaller countries to yourself, like Nicaragua, for example, has substantial uh, Chinese investment, El Salvador as well. And it's a uh, it's question to, based on the fact that not a lot of us understand how much larger Mexico is than the small neighbors to yourself, uh, from where a lot of the migration is actually coming. To. Can you talk a little bit about what Mexico? is doing to aid the development, not um, only in your southern
2: half of the southern states, but also in Central American countries, that mm-hmm. might allow people to derive a livelihood, which uh, you know, which will allow them to bloom where they're planted, as we
0: say. Yes. yes, I think it's a very pertinent question, as I said the position of the Mexican government is to address the root causes of migration. Uh, the root causes of migration are directly into the sustainable development of those Central American countries. So for, for Mexico has some very limited capabilities for uh, aid, but with that limited capabilities, we have concentrated all our efforts in the Central American and the Caribbean. The Caribbean for Climate Change resilience And in Central America, we have concentrated the effort in uh, capacity building and particularly in a program called "Mesoamerica America Mesoamerica North America Without Hunger, so Middle America Without Hunger. So we have been investing and uh, doing a lot of projects that are concentrated in the rural areas. Why? Because 60% of the migrants coming to Mexico and the U.S. come from the rural areas. So now some of the programs that President López Obrador is developing for Mexico, like Youth in the Future, which is a system of apprenticeships, and Cerrando Vida, Planting Life, which is to plant fruit trees and this, we are also uh, executing, implementing them in the Central American Congress. They need a huge level of reforestation, they need a huge level of training for youth people. But our capacity is very small. We can invest maybe 30 million dollars in, in, in Honduras, which is nothing in comparison, what we, the US can do. But we are working also very closely the, the, with the Minister of Finance and the, the Ministry of Finance of Mexico to, uh, to coordinate, all the loans and activities that I did, the Inter American Development Bank and the World Bank are doing in Central America. So, to align all the projects that we avoid repetitions and and, and that we can have more uh, concrete results. But the, the real geopolitical idea is that if we can pull the south and southeast of Mexico to the levels of development of the central and northern part of Mexico, we'll be a poor factor for the economies of the Central America. So that we will have an integrated economic zone of South and Southeast Mexico and Central America. And in that sense is what Ambassador Gabriel was saying. Was saying the mission for the future will be the integration of the North American region, not from Canada to the Suchiate, which is a border with Guatemala, but from Canada to the you have?
1: a horse on the race between the U.S. and China in this region, I mean, it matter to Mexico that China invests in Central America substantially, and I hope does that as
2: well. I mean, should be concerned about Chinese interests in, uh, in the region? But frankly, I've got other things to worry about. <laughs> I think, uh, obviously, when countries invest start making new investments in a region, uh, an area, the state of Minnesota, one wants to be sure that that investment is conducted in terms of the local culture and the economy. I've never been very concerned about China investing anywhere, anywhere. Uh, What I know in, in my particular business right now, uh, We have a lot of contact with China, but there's much more interest in India in investing in Mexico than China investing in Mexico. And uh, the reasons that you you mentioned. So uh, perhaps I lack the vision necessary, but boy, China can go into Guatemala or Honduras to help the economic development there. I think that works for advantage. Okay,
1: thanks I'm going to go to some of the questions that have come in, and my apologies in advance if I don't get to yours, or if I sort of trample on your question and Hopefully I articulated it reasonably well. Um, can the US help to strengthen Mexican governance? And become and economy by stopping
2: illegal laws. I think you may be having a little trouble to speak up. Can people hear me in that? I see some of the oh, last okay. famous blank faces. <laughs> <the street>. <laughs> <laughs> Who's been talking the most? Did I
1: pass on that one? Because it's difficult for to actually read it. Maybe the person can re articulate it. Um,
0: the issue of
1: the arms, no? It's the issue of stopping the illegal arms trade and uh, and problem of illicit drug trafficking, which is a large area, of topic area worthy of conference unto itself. It obviously is fodder for a lot of the rhetoric that we keep talking about. Cartels, the drug activity, the social instability that it all comes in can you address, you know, what do you think, broadly speaking, are solutions that might come, especially from Mexico,
0: and speaking for Europe Well, I, I, I would say that the, uh, the issue of the, I would speak in general of the issue of security, in which we have so many initiatives mm-hmm. and so many challenges that since uh, the incoming government took office, we have been evaluating what has worked and what has not worked. For example, in the Merida Initiative. Do we want to continue with the Merida Initiative as a concept? Maybe, but we have to change the orientation and maybe even the name because the Merida Initiative was is linked and this in the mind of many mexicans to the transfer of armaments and this is not happening anymore
1: can i just ask you to back up for those of us in the in the audience who may not know
0: give give us cliff notes if you will on the merida initiative well (laughs) that is a whole conference well the merida initiative is is an initiative of in which the u.s was uh, transferring let's say, helicopters at the beginning, and then basically some resources and some capacity building and training to address some of the uh, needs uh, of Mexico fighting fraud and organized crime. And it was always conceived as a complement to the national efforts of Mexico. So uh, this is basically the Marine Initiative. The thing is that in, in the mind of many Mexicans, the Merida Initiative is talked to their minds as just the transfer of helicopters for, for the army to fight against drugs. Uh, this is not happening anymore in the last few years. It's more and more now, for example, one of the main elements now of the Merida Initiative is non-intrusive technology at the ports of entry, kind of scanners. Another one is the training of judges for the new uh, Mexican uh, justice system that is, is more similar now to the US justice system and uh, different from the previous one. So we are evaluating and saying, okay, what is working on the initiative and why is not working? And so we have been identifying that, for example, all the help that we have received from the US government to do the tracking of money laundering is something that we have to keep in the future. Uh, Another thing is that we uh, want to keep the collaboration on inclusive technology, so to make ports of entry, particularly on customs, more flexible. Another area that we want to keep cooperation is in this help for the new uh, Mexican justice system. But we also want to have some help on this establishing uh, and the establishment of the National Guard and more investment uh, and, and, and to focus more on those areas in which organized crime is more rampant, particularly in the areas in which there is copy producing or this. So, uh, so we are, have been evaluating Medea uh, Initiative. We have been evaluating another initiative that is called Order 21st, and we have been identifying what are the priorities for the immediate future cooperation and security. So, of course, on the U.S. side the issue of fentanyl and methamphetamines and chemical precursors. Now, it is much more important than what it used to be, for example, the fight against marijuana. Why? Because marijuana has been legalized in many states in the U.S. and there is even some consideration in Mexico to, the, to legalize the medical use of marijuana. So marijuana is becoming less of a, less of a challenge, but fentanyl is becoming more of a challenge. And in fentanyl, we have also the challenge of China because most of fentanyl and chemical precursors come from China, so we know that we have to work more in a trilateral, but even four countries way, Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and China, to do all the tracking. So this is what we are doing now, and one area of main interest that Mexico has identified, and it's not a recent identification, but it goes back several years, is that as drugs come from Mexico to the U.S., and by the way, not all rocks are produced in Mexico because as you know, cocaine is not produced in Mexico. We are more of a transit country. Uh, a lot of arms are coming illegally to Mexico. This is of course has different aspects of this, this traffic, the This illicit traffic customs are not being very they are not very efficient, so we have to improve the privacy of our uh, customs, but also the uh, the issue of that in the U.S. is so easy to acquire arms without having any backgrounds, any registration. And uh, now you even can acquire pieces of arms and then assemble them later. And so there is a very intense uh, illegal traffic of arms in Mexico. That it's uh, basically uh, it's one of the elements of what of the violence in Mexico. Of, of the organized crime. So we're trying to to, to focus our, um, um, our activities on trying to stop these arms in five ports of entry. And we are already establishing a working group that it's, uh, well, we, we had one, they, they are renovating their meetings monthly to see what is going on. So this is what we have been doing, let's say, in a more general way, is evaluating where are we in security cooperation. We have now in Mexico the Assistant Secretary for INL, Christian Madison. So we're doing where are we, what, in what areas we have been successful, in what areas the success has not been so great, so let's eliminate those areas. Let's keep the areas in which we have been successful, and let's integrate new areas into this cooperation, taking into account the new priorities of the government of Mexico. I mean, from the Mexican point of view. I don't
1: know. We're running short on time, I'm sorry to say. Um, so maybe one more question, um, and one that may be relevant to, especially students on this campus. Can you talk a little bit about? what happens to the fate of DACA? Uh, I want to
0: announce that yesterday the government of Mexico presented an amicus curia to the Supreme Court. You? Huh? We, we, we submitted an amicus curia to the Supreme Court uh, to argue why DACA and reverse programs have to be maintained. Uh, we did it in one of the three cases that were considered before and that they are now consolidated in the Supreme Court. And basically our arguments in, in favor of DACA dreamers is first, the Mexican government has a constitutional obligation and an obligation by, by being part of the uh, covenants of the civil and political rights and human rights covenants to protect the Mexicans, either in Mexico or abroad, to reduce their vulnerabilities. And if DACA is finished, the Mexican population that is covered by DACA rumors, which is approximately 800,000 people, they will be in a very vulnerable position. So that is why we are telling the Supreme Court that in the opinion of the government of Mexico, DACA rumors should continue until there is another solution found for, for them. And that it should continue also not only because these people will be sent back into the shadows, but because it is the time to recognize all the contribution that these young people have made to the U.S. society, to the U.S. economy. And because uh, most of them have had, because of that, are also working permits so, they are paying taxes, they are contributing to the society. Some of them have children that are US citizens. Imagine if they are not protected anymore and they are sent back to Mexico, what would happen with these children would be the separation of families. You can see the whole statement of the Mexican government that was submitted yesterday to the US Supreme Court uh, with all these arguments. But what also makes me very proud is that this uh, submission was made through uh, an office, uh, an attorney's office in Dallas, <coughs> by two by two female lawyers, one born in Mexico, a naturalized U.S. citizen, and the other a Mexican American. So what best? Example of what Rivers and DACA can bring to this and have brought this country that the defense of the DACA Rivers on behalf of the Mexican government, William Cuscuya, is done by two young female lawyers that are really the embodiment of this new generation. So we are totally for the continuation of the DACA and Rivers programs. We are even supporting them for to renew their processes, even financially, and the consulates, we have instructed all the consulates of Mexico to support them financially. And we hope that all this issue of data agreements will also be taken into account in this comprehensive, in reform that is so sorely needed. I'm
1: going to take one more minute and give you 30 seconds Ambassador that, David L. You essentially imply that this too shall pass, and- relationship between the United States and Mexico uh, will once again
2: apply, unless I misunderstood. But if I didn't, ten years from now, what might that look like? What might that look like? It will totally depend on the nature of our leadership in both countries. I think there has been a dismal lack of vision in the United States and in Mexico since NAFTA developed. We're just talking about DACA. DACA is a tragedy. It is a tragedy for the individuals involved in their families to live with such lack of assurance. But it's also a tragedy for what it says about the incapacity of the American government to get its job done. All polls indicate that upwards of 80% of Americans feel that DACA must be addressed, and addressed in a meaningful way. But because of our own political paralysis, our own lack of vision, our own poor leadership, and I'm not saying this is exclusive to one party or another, we haven't gotten it done. Now, democracy is complicated, Obviously, we all know that, but it does seem to me that we ended a period in our history in which we are making democracy even less effective and more complicated. And unless we turn ourselves around, I think the U.S.-Mexico relationship will be one of those casualties. I was hoping you were more optimistic.
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, we are out of time. I will urge you if you, uh, we we have a story that will be uh, screened outside during the break that actually will bring home, uh, we hope, because it did to the television audience, uh, one glimpse of how all of this plays out in real life, and in this case in Wisconsin, and in a place close to where you are native, in uh, in Orizaba in Mexico, and that is the very intimate relationship between the dairy industry in Minnesota and Wisconsin and its Mexican, mostly Mexican labor force, which is the majority of dairy workers in America's dairyland, by the way. And so I would you to go up there and watch it. And uh, again, on behalf of, of this conference and the Untold Stories Project. Uh, we have some propaganda over there. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you. Ambassadors, thank you so much.